Hello, and welcome to this special presentation of Heritage Radio Network. My name's Kat Johnson. I'm the Communications Director here at HRN, and today I have a special guest in the studio with me. Stephen Satterfield is the co-founder of Whetstone Media. He's a self-proclaimed origin forager. Stephen Satterfield is a food writer, multimedia producer, and founder of Whetstone Magazine. And before his career in media, he was a social entrepreneur advocating for wine as a catalyst for economic development for black and indigenous wine workers in South Africa's Western Cape. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. So we were chatting a little bit before we started and having some pizza, um, and you were telling me a little bit about little bit about your background in mm-hmm. wine and specifically with working in South Africa. Can you take us kind of through that journey and, and what got you started in wine to begin with? Yeah, um, let's see. So I, I got into wine at a very early age in life. Um, I was still a teenager. I enrolled in culinary school in Portland, Oregon, in the hospitality and restaurant management program. And part of the curriculum was uh, wine education, sort of like an intro to wine class. And I really took to it. Um, I had a cursory interest uh, in high school. So like my senior year in high school, um, I was leaving school early to go home and cook along with Julia Child and Jacques Pepin. So a little insight into my my youth. Um, And then I went to University of Oregon uh, from Atlanta. And after my first year of college, I decided uh, that college wasn't for me. And I really felt strongly that I wanted to pursue a career in some fashion in culinary arts. Um, And so I went into this hospitality and restaurant management class, had my first formal education around wine, um, and completely fell in love with it. And so by the time I was 21, uh, I was a sommelier and was working on the floor in Portland, and um, that was really the onset of almost 10 years of working in some fashion in the wine business. Was it hard to kind of study wine um, as you were not 21 Since I couldn't drink. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, it was really a funny thing because I was the youngest person in my class, and um, I don't think it ever really occurred to anyone that there were any minors in the class. You know, it just wasn't a thing that came up. Um, and the same uh, for, you know, the program. It was the International Sommelier Guild was the name of the skill that I tested through. And so it wasn't until basically they, I was being awarded this certificate, you know, that uh, there was some like requisite paperwork because my boss paid for it, you know. So there was at no point in which kind of like my identity was was part of the uh God, I hope I don't get anyone in trouble. This was so long ago, though. Um, it's water under the bridge. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's wine under the bridge. Wine under the bridge. It's all gone. So, yeah, that um, it wasn't really a thing because I was already really deep in the, the community of wine. And, um, you know, being in Portland uh, started to befriend a lot of people who are working in the Willamette Valley. So it was just all around. Was there a wine or a moment in your education that kind of flipped the switch for you from knowing you were going to do food to Mm. I'm all in with wine. Mm. No one's ever asked me that. Um, Yeah, I remember that's a really good question. So I remember um, tasting wine by this producer named Steve Doriner, um, who makes wine at a winery called Christum. And uh, of course, so much of the early wine education is about, uh, describing 
the flavors and um you know one of the things that often comes up with pinot noir is like barnyard and funk and these kinds of descriptors and i understood it intellectually but i hadn't really seen or felt that uh terroir in practice and the first time i was exposed to his wines um i think i was 20 i just remember being like oh this is like this is the thing like this is what everyone uh is referring to not i mean and that that is almost like kind of dumbing down his wines because they're really they're, he's still one of my favorite producers but um the the notion of terroir outside of um this like sort of fantastical construct really hit me as um an appropriate framework to evaluate the quality of wine and also as a jumping off point to to think about wine as agriculture and you're originally from Atlanta, and yep. then you did go back and spend some time um, as a sommelier in Atlanta. What was that period of your career like? Yeah, that was, um, you know, I moved back to Atlanta and I worked as a sommelier uh, at um, Restaurant Eugene um, for a summer. Uh, I had a great experience working there. Really, at the time, um, I was just getting this nonprofit off the ground, so um yeah, my, my journey as a sommelier, you know, I'm I'm a black man and uh, it is and was uh, a really kind of predominantly white space, which is totally fine. Um, but at a certain point, I just felt like there was uh, I wanted to see more of me uh, in the space and I wanted to kind of uh, deepen the conversations or my own understanding about what was happening um outside of the restaurants. And so I started feeling really weird about serving these really high-end wines to um, people who I really wasn't able to relate to as a young black person. And so uh, I moved back to Atlanta and I decided to start a nonprofit um, that would basically, you know, our, our mission was basically to use wine as a catalyst for socioeconomic development in the Western Cape of South Africa. So I was really fond of South African wines. Um, and, you know, as I was learning more about the history of South Africa, it struck me that there was a lot of parallels um, in, you know, their struggle for liberation um, as as our own history in Atlanta, you know. Um, so I, I found that to be like a really profound thing for me. And it felt like a, a point of entry into something more real. Um, so we started working with black owned wineries. Um, and so the, I mean, the, the South African wine industry, I mean, it sounds pretty esoteric, but it, it actually makes sense when you learn about the history because, um, you know, it's one of the most important agricultural, uh, industries in South Africa, a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and at the time in 2008, uh, I believe there was only two black wi uh, wineries in South Africa, um, and the black and indigenous make up over 90% of the workforce and basically of a multi-billion dollar industry. And they had 0% ownership or representation. And, um, obviously, you know, I thought that was really messed up, but I also felt like, okay, I'm a sommelier. I speak this language. I have a background. Like this could be an opportunity for me to, um, you know, connect more deeply with something I'm, I really care about. And also, uh, kind of a social mission as well that was resonant. So what did the nonprofit do um, on the ground? Yeah, that's a good question. So on the ground, um, 
what we really wanted to do was basically start uh, kind of like a wine of the month club um, with our roster of wineries. But that was uh, really complicated to do in 2008 because each state is basically its own country in the way of wine laws. And many states have relaxed their wine laws uh, since then. Um, but uh, we had to kind of move off of that idea and essentially became like a, a nonprofit uh, broker. So we would find other importers and, um, you know, link them up with producers. Um, and or in some cases, I mean, what we really ended up doing was kind of acting as a marketing entity on behalf of uh, these black and indigenous wineries. And so that's actually I mean, that's really how I got into making media is because I was working with a filmmaker, I was doing newsletters, I was early on social media promoting these wines, and um, it started to become really uh, natural for me to uh, educate people about food and to use media as a means of, of education. And so how soon after that does Whetstone pop into your mind? Um, there's quite a long time. There's a lot that happened. You know, that was, um, we were a nonprofit and that was in the thick of the recession. So truly the worst time imaginable <laughs> to um, begin a nonprofit. But um, we were able to let it, right. I mean, we did have some success. Uh, we were able to ride it out for about three years. And um, after the World Cup, I remember we had a huge, like, international food music and arts tour we did a bunch of events and fundraisers and I was just so burned out you know there was so little money and I was working so hard um, that I decided I need to I needed a reset and so I moved to California uh, in 2010 and I uh, started working at a restaurant called Nopa which is a fabulous uh, restaurant in San Francisco and uh I was hired there as a manager, um, which I wasn't really excited about. I kind of wanted to enter as like maybe a, a busser or something a little bit. Really? Well, because, the, you know, I was it was so much responsibility to run this nonprofit. And I was still like in my you know mid 20s and I just kind of wanted to chill for a little bit. Um, but they wouldn't let me chill. They were like, if you want to work here, this is the only position that we're going to hire you as. And so I almost, I mean, I actually did turn down the job. But um, luckily, I had some friends in the Bay Area who knew the restaurant really well. And they were like, no, this place is totally um, ethically aligned. Like, don't, no matter, like, it's a nice restaurant, but you're going to really get along with the owners, which um, proved to be true. And uh, I managed at Nopa for a few years and um, by kind of the second year that I was there, um, I really wanted to tap back into the, the creativity around storytelling, um, particularly at the point of origin, um, because I was, I was getting really close to the producers and that we were working with in the Bay Area. And so um, I convinced them to let me start kind of a multimedia company within the company um, called Nopalize. And uh, they weren't I mean, these were fortunately really uh, successful restaurants, and so there was no PR or anything like that. And I basically said, like, why don't we use what is this phantom marketing or PR budget um, and take ownership of the stories? You know, I really didn't feel um, like the paper or the blogs were able to represent um, how dynamic the restaurant was. I mean, because what made them special is that they were not just buying from local farms, but they were so committed to 
facilitating a real relationship between the farmers and the people who work there. It was a real community. And um, it's hard to represent that when you're on the outside of it. And so um, I worked with a bunch of creatives all over the Bay Area. They basically gave me like a monthly trade budget. Um, and so I would go up to like a filmmaker and be like, yo, I know you love NOPA. Like I got 500 bucks if you wanna do this video on like how to make a cocktail for NOPA or something like that. Or like we'd go to a farm or something. And um, it was pretty slick. We, we ended up uh, with, you know, kind of our own little podcast uh, series. We probably did about maybe 60 or 70 videos and hundreds of different um, blogs. We did, um, you know, tours for the public. So that was a really uh, illuminating thing for me. I, I got really into to media um, and uh, that actually became my full time job at NOPA. Uh, which culminated in 2015, at which point they basically said, like, hey, this thing is, like, you know, getting kind of big and has less and less to do with our restaurants. Like, maybe you ought to go figure this out on your own. So they kind of politely kicked me out of the house. Um, <laughs> but uh, before they did that, they were they're kind enough to um, basically say, like, what would you need to realize some manifestation of this in real life. And I said, you know, I really want to continue um, with these kind of uh, purveyor-centric or origin-centric stories, but instead of local food culture of Northern California, I want to do the local food culture of the world. Um, and uh, I want to come up with like a brand that represents that. And so they gave me a check for five grand and they were like, okay, go find someone to help you. So I hired a designer, a genius designer on the cheap because we had already had, you know, an existing relationship. And we went through the whole branding uh, of Whetstone, what was to become Whetstone. Um, and at the end of the process, you know, we had our own like typeface, we had the logo and all this other stuff. And so I went back to the owners of Nopa and I was like, okay, I got this thing called Whetstone and I'm gonna go pursue it. And uh, that was literally my last day of work. <laughs> it was just over. Wow. Yeah. Why, how did you land on the name Whetstone? Um, so, yeah, you know, a lot of people who have had the um, non-enviable position of having to name something will know, like, just kind of how annoying that whole process is. So I was working um, with a team of three people, like, you know, some friends of mine who were in the marketing um, space. Uh, Whetstone for me, it was a name that I submitted because I loved, there was two things about it that I really loved. Um, the first of which is that I felt it represented um, kind of like a secret handshake, uh, some insider knowledge, which is basically, um, you know, most people think about the first step uh, for a chef is like, you know, chopping the vegetables or starting the prep. But really, the first step for a chef is to sharpen the knife every day. And so there was something around um, the ritual of sharpening the knife on a daily basis. And obviously the connotations of, you know, honing and getting sharper um, through this ritual was really resonant for me. Um, and so we, we voted on it and we stuck with it. And I love it. I love the name Whetstone. And when did the first issue of the magazine come out? came out in the spring of 2017 um so yeah it was late in the fall of 2015 when we first got the idea um i spent the entire year of 2016 really just 
flailing around, um, utterly clueless. I tried to do a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, actually, we, we raised... The original vision for Whetstone was really supposed to be kind of like Nopalize. We wanted this multimedia channel. And so um, I did a, a Kickstarter. We set a goal for $50,000. We raised about half of that, and I had to give it all back. And so I almost quit right there. I was, it was, a f I mean, it's, it's still hard for me to talk about um, because we've never come close to raising that much money since. But, uh, and it was a really, it was a tricky time as well because uh, the, my friend who I had started the project with actually uh, that year also died in a car crash. He was a really young man and we were really uh, close. I mean, we were really, this was a shared vision for both of us. So that was a rough year, you know, um, and I was really ready to let it go. But uh, as I moved through the grieving process, it became really clear to me that the best way forward, the best way to honor my friend was just to like figure this out. And so I just figured it out. I mean, I luckily uh, had a network of, of food professionals or, or stories that I had in mind. And so uh, I, begged people to work with me to buy into the vision. I really sold the vision of Whetstone. I mean, luckily we had a lot of clarity around what we were trying to make. And so clarity ends up being its own kind of currency in a way, um, you know, you can't really take it for granted. Sometimes people are really well capitalized and they try to go figure out what to do once the capital's there. And we had no capital, but we had uh, a really clear vision about what we wanted to make. And we leveraged that vision into really talented writers and designers. Um, and the first one came out uh, and it really felt like on the mark of what we wanted to do. Um, and I just used that, uh, I put it on a credit card. Um, and then we started selling direct consumer and pretty much that's been the nature of the relationship. I mean, we're in retailers, but mostly Whetstone has been all about hustle and you know one-to-one -one relationships at mainly $20 increments. So when you're working with a writer to have to publish a piece in Whetstone, what are you looking for in that piece? Um, right now, most of the pieces that we get <clears throat> are uh, stories that are pitched to us, which is a fortuitous position as an editor. Um, it wasn't the case for the first couple. Um, but what we're really looking for are stories around food that really speak to a sense of place. So we say Whetstone is about food origins, culture, and anthropology. Um, so the origins is uh, kind of in the anthropology, kind of self-explanatory. You know, we, we write stories about like the origins of wine and viticulture, the origins of corn, the origins of cacao, um, really looking at food from a super long, like 8,000 year lens. Um, so we love all those anthro stories. And then um, there's a lot of like food and identity stories. You know, the subtext, uh, as you can see, kind of a recurring theme in my life around representation. Um, you know, I thought that having a, a black editor um, with, you know, kind of working on a global food publication was in itself its own kind of radical act. Um, and, I, you know, it, it, it's like one thing that, I love about our magazine um, is that, you know, you have, I believe that we're, I'm the only black publisher, you know, of a food publisher. And so the contributors to our magazine look different than the contributors to every other magazine. 
And so, I mean, it's a little bit more on the surface now, but at that time, you know, it was slightly less on trend to talk about representation in media with such urgent terms. Um, and so I have really uh, been fortunate that I feel the magazine, in addition to just cool subject matter, has really been reflective of the world of food and the people who are telling the stories aren't necessarily professional writers. In fact, we were oftentimes working with people who have never been published before, but they live in different parts of the world or they're using food as a means of exploring their own identity. And so we have this kind of broader food culture tip, which is um, mostly manifesting through people uh, using food as as a way to to go deeper, you know, with, with their own history. And we, we love that, you know, people are able to see uh, themselves reflected in a magazine in a way that isn't cheesy, uh, that's really authentic. And, um, you know, there's so much power in that. So I wanted to ask you a couple things about the latest issue, um, okay. which is the summer 2018 issue. Mm-hmm. We have a, the fourth one's coming out next month, just a couple of weeks. Awesome. So this one from last year, um, you start with a, a really awesome piece that I love bringing poppy seeds to Puerto Rico by Alicia Kennedy. Who's mm-hmm. a friend of the station. Nice. We love her. Um, so. why did you choose to, I mean, this is obviously has a lot to do with the aftermath of hurricane Maria and it's, um, Alicia telling the story of bringing poppy seeds to some of her friends on the Island when mm-hmm. she had the first opportunity to go visit. And it seems like such a small thing, but it was, a big deal to those who couldn't source mm-hmm. a seemingly simple ingredient. Why did you decide to start this issue with that story? Good question. Um, that's a really good question. You know, honestly, a lot of those decisions around kind of prioritizing the order um, is really just about an innate feeling, you know, a vibe. Um, but the reason that I, I wanted to start off with that one uh, is because of the length Um, the design. So she actually was able to put us in touch uh, with an artist um, who's from Puerto Rico, uh, who did an incredible job. Uh, I believe her name's Rosara Rodriguez. Um, And she did an incredible job with the illustrations of these beautiful poppies. And so I just felt like, you know, the cadence was right in terms of the length, the quality of the writing um, and, and the illustration uh, we have some stories that can run long, you know, but uh, I think it's good for people to just like begin to dip their toe into our work with um, something that's maybe like a little bit more appropriately paced. But, um, you know, to your point, I, I love this story because um, it, I think like so often the the hard part about, you know, tragedy or uh, hearing things about politics, it just all feels so far away. And it's hard to know how to connect to those stories. I mean, we all have a sense that it's awful and we we feel that people have gone through devastation and loss and grief. But um, I find that it's when we get these more nuanced stories, right, about the the ways in which people's lives have been turned inside out, obviously, like, you know, losing your home is one kind of tragedy, but losing little things that give us comfort and that uh, really kind of make up, you know, it's part of a composition of our own identity, like losing those little bits of yourself in tragedy in a way is almost equally as tragic, right? Because physical 
infrastructure can be replaced. But, you know, the comfort of poppy seeds in this case is like, in a way, almost harder to access than the physical shelter. Um, so I just thought it was really nuanced. And uh, yeah, it's a great story. It is a great story. I also think that you're mentioning that uh, food identity mm-hmm. is like one sort of theme that runs throughout as well as this origin story. And mm-hmm. I love that she really goes into like some pretty thoroughly research yes. about poppy seeds and what the, what the implication is. That's Alicia for you. US yeah. trade. And yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, another th- uh, theme that seems to run throughout a lot of the stories in issue three um, is water. Mm. And the different ways that water, um, whether it's with harvesting sea salt or mm-hmm. whether it's um, people bringing food to market on a river. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that was intentional or is it just that you can't really ever divorce food waste from water? No, you're super clever. No, it's actually um, honestly never even occurred to me that that was a, a, a theme in the magazine. But you're absolutely right. And um, yeah, same idea. You know, I think with water... Uh, again it's just so hard like when you when you hear about droughts or you know um irrigation like unless you're living from working on the land it's hard to be connected to that i mean even as a food professional who shops at farmers markets and goes to visit farms like that's stuff that you only understand like on the paper um but when you understand water um like uh for instance the story um, in Vietnam from Jessica Hernandez, who was writing about uh, floating markets in, uh, in Thailand. And it's really, really cool because you see water as uh, kind of central to food, but not in the ways that are immediately apparent to us. You know, um, it's about oftentimes a migration of people and product um, that is the story of food. It's all about migration, uh, whether it's forced or not. And um, water is really central, you know, to our food traditions and our food cultures, no matter where we are. And then one other thing I noticed was there's a lot of different types of bread. But at the end of the day, bread's bread. Mm-hmm. And it seems to sort of tie these seemingly unlike cultures together in a totally way. that's that is actually what i love about whetstone you know when we have stories from like uh iran or mexico or uh you know new mexico right it's we start to see um recurring patterns like for instance on the cover of the second volume um we had this image of fish uh being air dried in uh, south korea and uh, we just completed today, actually, we do these little, uh, we call them dispatches, um, where we drop into like a different part of the world and create these little videos. So we did one from England. Um, and then today uh, we just shared one from the Gambia, um, from the Tanji fish market. And really it's all about how they use air and smoke to preserve their fish. But you see these um, kind of recurring themes or food traditions all over the world from people who look nothing alike and in making those connections it's easier to find uh, a common humanity within it and that's ultimately kind of what the soul of the magazine is all about you know it's using food as a way to get to more difficult conversations it's using food as a way to uh, find yourself but mostly i think it's about food 
um, as a means of empathy. And um, the more we're trying to help deepen people's understanding of food, uh, because the more you understand, the more capacity you have to to love or the more capacity that you have for empathy, um, which, you know, I think we could all use a little bit more of these days. And I think, you know, food is is the easiest way for us to get there. So. Whetstone is now growing a little bit into Whetstone Media, which mm-hmm. kind of harkens back to what your original vision was and what you were doing with NOPA, mm-hmm. doing some more multimedia projects. Can you talk about what you have in the works and, and how the media company is going to grow? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, this is we're now getting closer to what I've wanted to do all along. Um, it's really hard to, you know, be an independent publisher. So it seems like a ridiculous trajectory to be like, okay, the path of least resistance is to start a magazine. Um, but actually that ended up being the case for us. And, um, you know, it wasn't that I had some kind of, uh, real foresight around that. It was just because that was the only thing that was available to us, obviously creating, um, you know, especially with film is a much more, uh, costly form of media. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think for us, we because we have this clarity around what we're trying to make, um, we want to see that manifest across all different platforms and channels. Um, so the most significant uh, vi- video work that we've done to date was in the Republic of Georgia. So we released last month a short film called um, Wild Grapes. Uh, it took almost two years to make, um, but basically... I went to the Republic of Georgia for the first time in 2015 um, after, you know, my my last day at NOPA, decided, OK, I need to go to Georgia. Uh, I Wine has always been a big part of my life, and I wanted to go to learn about where wine came from. And um, I remember I got there and I, I was feeling so confident about like, OK, these are the stories I'm going to write. This is going to be my angle. And when I got there, I never felt smaller or more ignorant in my whole life because I had been so, I had really committed my life to wine, you know, up until that point. And there was just so much I didn't know, you know, I just felt like I was being introduced to wine again for the very first time, you know, with the grape varieties and the techniques and the language. Um, it was super far out. So I took a lot of notes. I really humbled myself and I knew that at some point I wanted to go back to Georgia, you know, with a camera to go deeper on some of the stories that um, I was exposed to. So in 2017, um, I convinced one of my very best friends, who's also a genius filmmaker and who's become a partner um, in our our media company, um, David Alexander, to visit me basically on spec, (laughs) you know, out of pocket, flying from London to come to the Republic of Georgia to uh, go in these really remote villages where there wasn't going to be internet. And I mean, it's just like there's no pre-production in the way that we think about running pre-production for a professional set. So he really took a leap, but um, I think it comes through in the film because it's really clear that there is a a kind of intimacy that was established um, that I don't think we could have gotten to if it was so meticulously produced. Um, so basically wild grapes is a story, um, told in three acts. Uh, but we basically look at wine and the history of wine in Georgia, um, as you know, 
from an 8,000 year arc, you know, and, and really examine the ways in which it's permeated the culture. So, um, yeah, and we have a couple more projects coming out this year, which I can just vaguely say we will have a second, we'll have a follow-up Wild Grapes, so there will be another one. In Georgia or a new location? A, a new location. Okay. Um, and then uh, we are, I mean, like I said, we did something um, from the Gambia, but we ha we're really interested in exploring the continent of Africa as well, um, which we've done a little bit on in the magazine, but um, obviously Africa's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's a big place. <laughs> so we feel like there's a lot more that can be done there. And um, we've done, and not only us, I mean, I think in general, food media, uh, especially American food media, has just not been great about, you know, covering stories from the continent. Not that it's easy, but um, we that's kind of like a direction that we're interested in pursuing. Um, we were mentioning Jessica B. Harris as someone, obviously, <sighs> who's been writing about the diaspora for a very, True very queen. long time. Um is there anyone else that you like would hold next to her as someone who you think is doing storytelling the way it should be done and covering the, the honestly no one can stand next to Jessica Harris. I really mean that too. Um I think that a lot of us, you know, of a certain generation who are new or newer to this work, you know, we might be familiar with her work in a cursory way or with her but like, not really, you know? I mean, everything I'm saying about Africa, Jessica B. Harris was doing that stuff in the early 70s. And, you know, she was doing it for nation, like national magazines back in the 70s. I mean, she was so, so, so far ahead of her time. Um, her research around rice, I mean, again, talking about Senegal and Gambia and West Africa, like she really created a blueprint for me, I feel in a lot of ways, um, about how to think about food, how to write about food. Um, she's a much better writer than I'll ever be. But, um, yeah, I really, I have so much reverence for her that, um, I can't imagine who else I would kind of hold, uh, alongside her. But, um, let's see who else do we like, uh, we, we like? like a lot of people. Yeah. I just, but I think the, you know, our work I feel is kind of, um, at least in the moment, you know, we're, we're kind of singular in, in our focus. Um, I know there's another really cool magazine called, um, Eaton magazine, um, which is kind of more like a food history magazine. Um, and we're part of a community of, uh, you know, independent publishers, food publishers, um, that, uh, are kind of, I think part of a, a rising tide. Um, so I feel very in community, you know, with the moment and with other publishers. Um, but I also feel like, you know, with, there's a lot of things about Whetstone that is, we're the only ones who are really doing it in the way that we're doing it. And one of the last things that I have to ask you about um, that I mentioned is Rum Agricole. Yes. Because you wrote a piece for Esquire, mm -hmm. Esquire last year, um, saying that it's like the next big spirit. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, there's a lot of things to be fascinated about with Rum Agricole specifically. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about what is Rum Agricole? What, what differentiates it from just rum? Yeah, so Rum Agricole is basically uh, agricultural rum. So most rum that we drink is uh, derivative of molasses. 
um, and agricole is uh, rum that is derivative of the sugarcane juice. And so the flavor is much more pure. It's much more assertive. It's grassy. It's super funky. Um, it, it almost is not, it ought to not be called rum. Um, like it almost needs its own category, which is, I guess, uh, you know, what the French were thinking when they were in Martinique, uh, you know, developing this particular style of rum. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I've noticed that I have started to see it, you know, in more restaurants, in bars, I think that'll continue to be the case. But the thing about rum just in general as a category is that, you know, spirits are not cheap. But um, when you get to the the high end of spirits, it's like it becomes less and less attainable. You know, um, the, the simplest things to think about are like the Japanese whiskeys or, um, you know, some really rare bourbons, for instance. But with with rum, it's like if you spend a hundred bucks, you know, you can you can do so much with that hundred dollars. And uh, because agricole hasn't really been on the the minds or the palates of consumers or a lot of uh, beverage programs, then it's just a category or a subcategory that I feel is kind of nascent, you know, for for the industry. Um, and again, it's changing, but I it makes sense to me when you look at the value and the quality. Uh, the same thing that happened with mezcal, you know, kind of in the early days of mezcal and. Um, you know, rum, agricole doesn't have a, a Ron Cooper equivalent, uh, who is the, you know, really the, the pioneer that brought mezcal to uh, the U.S. What everyone has seen, the, the uh, green Vita mezcal bottles, now ubiquitous. Um, but even as recently as 10 years ago, you know, mezcal's behind the bar. It seems hard to imagine now, but it just wasn't a thing so much. Or it was definitely uh, an esoteric thing. Um, so when I look at spirits and I'm an enthusiastic drinker, like I love tea, coffee, wine, everything, I drink it all. And when I, you know, examine like spirits, everyone always wants to know what's next, what's next. Um, it just feels like the thing, the most obvious next step. Is rum acrical? I, I, I mean, I don't want to overly encourage people to drink it because <laughs> I want to keep it affordable. Yeah. Um, and not like what happened with mezcal, but you know, rum agricole, uh, I think there's many like in Haiti right now, for instance, um, there's a rum that's getting a lot of press called Clarine, um, which is not called agricole because that's just in Martinique, but it's basically made in the same style, uh, or like cachaças for instance. Um, but I think it's, you know, for people who are into mezcal, for people who like, clear spirits with a lot of character and spunk um it's just hard i mean it might like my favorite cocktail is is a tea punch you know with just can you explain what that is yeah it's just um it's just like a little bit of uh well here we use um like simple syrup um and then uh squeeze a lime over ice so simple but um you know obviously samine is like getting all the shine for her salt fat acid heat framework so kind of <laughs> uh along the same lines you know with like the acid and a little bit of sweetness and um they tend to be like a little bit punchier like kind of higher proof 
Um, and so I love the spice and I just love that funk and character. And it's just perfectly kind of tempered by just a little bit of lime and just a little bit of sugar. Excellent drink. Um, I was wondering, since Agricole has such a like, you have terroir in it where mm-hmm. you lose a lot of that when you're working with molasses as your mm-hmm. base for a rum. Do you see a link between your love for Agricole and your love for wine? No question. The whole thing about wine, like it changed my life and the life changing event was the discovery of terroir because I mean, you can see in our work still, you know, we, that kind of application, that worldview, I'm still applying to, to food, to drink, to everything because, uh, it is a really useful way to kind of think about a place, you know, everywhere, no matter where you are, it has its own agricultural history and traditions. And so if there is a, a point of reference, you know, in that history, then um, it's a really exciting thing to refer back to, um, you know, to, to evaluate what you're drinking. And I just on the topic of terroir, I had to go back to the latest issue because one thing that popped out to me that I loved was in a story about seaweed and mm. eating different seaweeds, the word marijuana is <laughs> yeah. used. <laughs> yeah. Um, my homie Kevin Kelly. Yeah. Um, is good. I had actually never heard that until, um, is it an invention or was it a, a word? I can't take credit for it. I think, I think my friend Kevin, uh, Kelly, who's mentioned in that article, um, is he's the first person that I've ever heard use it. So if I'm I love it. not appropriately crediting someone else, I apologize. I just wasn't familiar with your work. Um, but yeah, you know, God, seaweed, I mean, talk about something else that is already bubbling, but it's just going to continue to explode, um, mainly because of its regenerative properties. I think we're getting a lot more sophisticated and mindful about um, not just like farm to table, but the next kind of evolution of that ideology, which is uh, about regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture. Um, and definitely seaweed is at the very top of that list. Um, but also just for culinary applications, you know, I think it's just a really cool time to be doing this work because a lot of chefs are on this journey with us, you know, um, like when I look at JJ Johnson, um, he's got his, uh, his rice restaurant or grain restaurant, um, that I think it just opened or is about to open. Mm -hmm. And, uh, basically what he's doing is you know, getting grains from all over the world and then, you know, remixing it as like something that it seems like ubiquitous or cheesy, like a, a grain bowl or something. But it's it's really deep because um, there's so much scholarship in in actually bringing that that vision to to market. You know, same with Eduardo, um, Eduardo Jordan in, in Seattle. Like if you go to um june baby's website he's got a glossary on there which is so dope like of all the ingredients it's like there's a there's a real um commitment i find among chefs more and more to really not only want to you know obviously make delicious food but to have the ingredients be about some kind of a historical connection um so I feel, yeah, it's like we're, we're just here in the right moment in time. And it's an amazing um, thing to be able to cover. Uh, and, you know, I'm just excited to, as our food culture, collective food culture of the country continues to mature, then, um, you know, we're going to be exposed to 
different flavors and varieties of things that we thought were extinct or, you know, haven't had contact with in dozens or hundreds of years. And it's going to open up like new pockets on the palette for us. You know, it's a whole new kind of uh, colorscape to, to paint with. Awesome. Well, last question for you is what's the info for the next issue? When's it coming out? Where can people find it? And also where can people just learn more about Whetstone Media? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Um, so if you go to whetstonemagazine.com, you can find out all things Whetstone Magazine. Um, the next volume comes out uh, in about three weeks, so mid-February. Um, we have a cover story of a sorghum harvest from Indonesia. Uh, we have a story from the Siwa Desert in, in Egypt um, about people fertilizing date trees, which is really rad. Uh, we have a story written by a Native American woman um, in New Mexico. So same same vibe, you know, kind of more of what we've been delivering on. Um, so you can subscribe to the magazine or buy the magazine there at whetstonemagazine.com. Um, and if you want to check out some of our film work and some of our forthcoming uh, audio and film projects, uh, you can just go to whetstonemedia.co, not com, because we couldn't get it. Not yet. One day we're going to get it. You'll get it. Um, but right now, yeah, whetstonemedia.co. You can read about our creative services that we offer and check out all of our film projects to date. Incredible. Well, Steven Satterfield, thanks for joining me today to talk about Whetstone and your journey through our crazy food world. Our crazy food world. Thanks, <laughs> Kat Johnson. All right. Yeah, I'm Kat Johnson for Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>